It was a large, old reading room in the basement of an old Victorian building in an old village in old New England. The room was a sea of dusty old wingback chairs, grouped in twos, facing round small tables. One could not walk a straight line from the double doors to the fireplace at the far end. A dozen people could be in the room and not see anyone else but the person opposite. This was the hometown of an obscure writer of short, weird fiction from the turn of the last century. And I thought these stories from original manuscripts would be a crowning addition to my thesis on transitional short fiction of the late 19th and early 20th century. It was to be my grand opus and would cement my position as the rising star of the English department. But time was short. It had taken me hours to navigate the narrow country roads to get here. Why did these types of writers always live in such backwater places? I arrived in time to stick my foot in the door, just as the old maid librarian was closing it. After a few minutes of very picturesque begging and pleading, she showed me to the archive room, which was next to the reading room, and left, telling me to lock the door on my way out. After an hour of collecting material, I dragged it to the empty reading room and sat down to my study. I was tired and must have fallen asleep because suddenly I was shocked awake by a deep voice which seemed to come from a wingback chair on the other side of the room. These stories are much more interesting when they are heard rather than read, it said. Listen, and you'll hear what I mean. Here are two stories about two very bad men doing not-so-bad things. The Killer by Harold Ward The killer halted at the window of the tar-paper-covered shack and, nose pressed against the glass, sought to penetrate the gloomy interior. Satisfied that the place was unoccupied, he fought his way against the force of the storm to the spot where his eyes had marked the outline of a door. The thermometer showed a temperature of 20 below. The storm was increasing in violence every minute, and the killer was half frozen. Yet he stood with hand on the knob, making no effort to enter until his stiffened fingers had sought out the gun which nestled snugly in his outside pocket. With his teeth, he drew the mitten from his right hand, and with an effort that caused him to groan aloud with pain, rocked his benumbed forefinger around the trigger. Cautiously, turning the knob, he threw open the door and stumbled across the threshold in a tumultuous gale of wind and a whirl of snow. For an instant he stood there listening, every faculty alert. Then, satisfied that he was alone, he put his back against the panel and closed the door against the violence of the wind. The room was cold and tomb-like, yet to the killer, driven from place to place like a mad dog, it offered a haven for the night. He was tired, dead weary from traveling for what seemed centuries through snow, waist-deep in the face of the worst blizzard of the season. Every muscle, every nerve, ached with exhaustion. For the last mile he had fought against an ever-increasing desire to succumb to the feeling of drowsiness which crept over him. 
He was lost. Only his powerful will had kept him on his feet thus far. Sliding his gun back into his pocket, he whipped his hands against his chest and stamped his feet until circulation was partly restored. Then shaking the accumulation of snow from his shoulders, he unbuttoned his overcoat and fumbled in his vest pocket until he found a match. Striking it against the door, he held it aloft to view his surroundings. It flickered weakly, nearly went out, then burned brightly. By its yellow glow, he distinguished a nearby table on which stood a kerosene lamp. It took but an instant to apply the stump of the match to the wick. He was in what appeared to be a combined kitchen and living room. The light danced and threw grotesque shadows on the walls, covered with cheap pictures cut from newspapers. Shelving filled with dishes, covered with papers with the edges scalloped and crimped behind the cook stove in the corner. A slab of bacon hanging over a can of flour. A box beside the stove filled with great chunks of wood. All told of comforts that were his for the taking. A pair of slippers, run down at the heel, and an apron thrown across the back of a chair showed that a woman's presence had graced the room not long before. The killer's eyes fell upon the opening leading to another room. Cautiously, he drew his gun and tiptoed toward the faded curtain which served as a door. A board creaked beneath his weight. He stopped short, every nerve tingling. From behind the curtain came a groan. Then a woman's voice, plaintive, pain-racked. Is that you, William? The killer made no answer. With body hunched forward, poised on the balls of his feet, his glittering black eyes never left the curtained opening. His gun was well in front of him, his thumb on the hammer. Why don't you answer me, William? came the voice again. Please hurry. You have been gone so long, and I'm so sick. The killer twisted his body to one side of the opening, where he would be partly out of range. It's not William he answered gruffly. I'm a stranger, lost in the storm. Are you alone? The woman gave a startled cry. Yes! Oh, God, yes! She answered. And I'm sick, awful sick. Please help me. Are you armed? asked the killer. Without waiting for an answer, he picked up the lamp and stuffing the gun back into his pocket, but with his fingers still locked around the butt, he pushed aside the curtain and entered. The woman who lay between the coverlets was young. Just now her face was drawn with pain and pinched with cold. A startled look appeared in her eyes as the grim vestige of the killer appeared within range of her vision. She shrank back closer to the wall. The killer stepped closer to the bed and eyed her questioningly. Hmph, he granted. Fire! Hot water! Pans! Where are they? He lighted a lamp which stood on a stand near the bed, the woman's eyes following every move, filled with wonder and fear. Are you a, a doctor? she asked weakly. The killer smiled wryly. Then he shrugged his shoulders as if to shake off some memory. Used to be, years ago, he answered gruffly. Guess I've not forgotten all I know. Got nothing to work with, though. But how the devil do you come to be here alone, and in this condition? My husband, 
William Stevenson. He's sheriff, she explained between tinges of pain. He went away yesterday, after a bad man, a man named Henshaw. They call him the killer. Right after he went, the storm broke, and then this. She halted lamely for an instant. Then, as if seeking to defend her absent husband, she continued. He, the killer, has an awful record. Murdered a man in cold blood a week ago in Bree. Killed another several months ago. When William heard that he was seen in Midgeville, that's 30 miles away, over the mountains, he felt that he had to go. He hated to leave me, but he didn't think that this would happen, and... The killer turned his back so she might not see the look of amazement on his face. Bad snow slide down the canyon, he answered. Happened right after I came through. That's what's holding him. And now, madam, Mrs. Stevenson, quit fretting and let me get to work. He picked up the lamp and bore it back into the kitchen. Setting it on the table, he scratched his head with a puzzled expression on his face. Now ain't this a hell of a fix, he murmured to himself. Bill Stevenson's wife, the wife of Sheriff Bill, and he sworn to get me, dead or alive. Slowly, his eyes filled with a faraway look, and he buttoned his overcoat and drew down the flaps of his cap. Outside, the storm still raged. The wind was growing higher. It howled and whistled around the corners, rattling the windows and shaking the doors. The snow would cover his tracks in five minutes. Of course, the woman would die, she and the kid. But what difference? She was the wife of his worst enemy, and the kid would be his brat. I furthermore swear that, damn those memories of other days, wrath-like they insisted on appearing before him. For some reason, he could not get them out of his mind. And damn that old fool! Hippocrates, and his nonsensical oath. What business was it of his? He had long ago given up medicine. Let the woman die if she wanted to. But the baby. Curse the baby. Of course it was the sheriff's flesh and blood, but it was innocent. Why did the thoughts of the baby come to torture him and to keep him from making his escape? Slowly, as if reluctant to go, he crept to the door and laid his hand upon the knob. Oh, doctor, please, please hurry. It was the woman's voice, sobbing, pain-filled. The killer hesitated a second longer. Then he turned, and hurling mittens and overcoat into a corner, he commenced heaping kindlings into the stove. The End The Hater by B. W. Wilson Ivan Kobley was filled with hate from his birth. Always he had hated someone, something. It almost seemed that he could not live without hate. His whole nature was cold, sneering, and saturated with hate. Before he was able to walk, he jabbed with impotent rage at the little pig eyes of his fat, good-natured nurse. She only laughed at him and thought he would someday be a great man. As soon as he was large enough to steal kopecks from his father's purse and pour salt into the samovar, Ivan transferred his unnatural attentions to the one he should have loved, his mother. 
But she still loved him. She had prayed when he nestled in her arms as a tiny babe that he would grow to be a great, good man. All the Koblebs have been great, but she prayed that he might be good and kind. Soon that prayer seemed strange to her. She began to wonder how she could have thought there was any kindness in Ivan's little hate-filled heart. Then she prayed only that she might not live to see her son a man. A strange prayer for a mother. Once, as she sat mending his little woolen shirt by the firelight, the boy, with a fiendish expression on his face, caught up the scissors and hurled them full at her face, cutting a deep gash on her cheek. Ivan's father roared with delight, his flaming red beard shaking with approval. Ha-ha! he laughed gratingly. His first blood, and in the family. Keep on, Ivan, my boy, and someday you will be a great soldier like your father. Proudly he stroked his stiff whiskers. Then, with a kind of brutal kindness, he spoke to his wife, who was timidly trying to staunch the flow of blood with her kerchief. Never mind, Anna. The lad has spirit and will soon be a man. His country will need such men. His voice dropped a trifle. When we are ready. Anna paled, but knew better than to speak. Yes, her husband continued with his inhuman smile. We shall need such men as he, men who can forget their families, forget their wives, forget everything. He laughed, the raucous laugh of one who dreams a bad dream, a nightmare. But Ivan could not always remain a boy. He grew, and with him grew deeper and blacker his obsessing hatred. No longer did he give vent to it in open acts of violence. He had learned that he could give his mother more pain by little acts of disobedience, contemptuous ignoring of her authority. Sometimes, as she was tucking him into his bed at night, his body would grow rigid at her touch. Oh, how I hate you, he would murmur through tense lips. So after a few more years, Anna Kobleb died carrying the scar on her cheek to the grave. The doctor said pneumonia, but old Nitschkoff, the town sage, shook his head doubtfully, sadly. He had known Anna when she was a girl. For a time, Ivan wandered about from place to place, dazed. The object of his hate gone, his life seemed purposeless. Finally, he joined the army and was sent to a little garrison in Siberia. He was a good soldier. He could command men, and soon he was made an officer. But all the soldiers hated him for his cruelty. Ah, he would say to a villager bought before him, your reindeer broke out yesterday. Yes, the peasant would stammer fascinated by the terrible glint in the other's eyes. But the soldiers took away part of my fence, too. Twenty blows with the whip, Ivan would order calmly. He never imposed fines. He did not seem to care for money. But he was always out in the yard to see his sentence executed. As the blood oozed from the back of his tortured victim, freezing in the icy air, he smiled. It was as if some hunger within him was being satiated. It was soon after he became commander of the post that Ivan met Maria Tekernov. Maria, the flower girl, the peasants called her, 
was 18 with a light heart and a smiling face. Oh, she scoffed when they told her of their hard-hearted commander. Show me this cruel man and I will tame him for you. She shook her bright curls merrily. But when she saw him, all her roguishness left her. Oh, she breathed and fled blushing to her mother's cottage. There, in her little room, she buried her face in her hands. Oh, little mother, she moaned, it can't be true. He is so handsome, so tall. Her face was covered with a shy smile as she lifted it from her hands, and defiantly she threw back her head, and, and I love him, she finished quickly. Ivan was bewildered by the flower girl. It may be that he remembered vaguely his mother and was sorry, but he could not understand himself. No more could he enjoy the sufferings of others. Slowly the hate began to leave his face. The glint died out of his eye. The soldiers noticed it and nodded understandingly at each other. The little flower girl, they said thankfully, has captured him. At Christmas time they were married and Ivan took his little bride to live in the commandant's cottage. Soft and tender he was with her. Never would he let her do any hard work. Your hands are for play, Maria, he would say. Mine, thrusting out his brawny fist, for work. So they lived peacefully and quietly, while the villagers went about their work smiling. Our little flower girl has changed his heart, they said to one another. Now, when a citizen was brought to him, Ivan looked at him kindly. So your reindeer have broken out again, he would ask gently. That is too bad. I will send the soldiers to build you a better fence in the morning. Thus it came about that all the villages began to love Ivan and Maria, the flower gods they called them. It was soon after their little golden-haired son was born that Maria began to fade. She did not sicken, but like a beautiful, deep-hued, delicate flower, she faded away softly. Finally she went, a smile on her face, and her hand tightly clasped in Ivan's. With a sob, Ivan went out into the snow. For days he walked the frozen tundra alone. Only at night did he come back to the village for food. Those who saw him shook their heads. It is coming back, they said sorrowfully. He is forgetting the little flower girl. Then, one morning, Ivan staggered into the town, gaunt and haggard. Call the people together, he said hollowly, and the soldiers noted the glint in his eye. He picked one of the men from the mass. Olzinkov, the cobbler it was, had him stripped and tied to the whipping post. Twenty blows, he commanded his soldiers hoarsely, but the sight of blood sickened him. No, no, he cried after a few blows. I can't. He gave the suffering man a piece of gold and went to his empty cottage. There in a stupor, he knew now that no more could he enjoy the sufferings of others. Maria had killed that forever. Ah, Ivan, he muttered over and over to himself. What a fool you are. Then finally, with something like a smile, Ah, uh, Ivan, how I hate you. 
How I hate you! Suddenly a light broke over his face. Ha, Ivan, he exulted wildly. You can kill the one you hate. The glint in his eyes sparkled and danced. The next morning, the peasant found him hanging from a beam in his cottage. His arms were open wide, and on his face was that pleased, satisfied smile. In his eyes, a cold, hateful glint, fixed there forever. The End I must have fallen asleep again. The next thing I remember was the librarian's voice from the hall outside. That damn young fool didn't lock the door, it said. Times aren't what they used to be. I ducked low and crept out when she wasn't looking. The whole drive back, all I could think about were those marvelous stories. Such marvelous stories. <laughs>